Hey guys, it's Robert Gardner with the Robert Gardner Wellness Podcast. Very happy to have Paul Kohlmeyer here today to talk about cupping uh, in the massage industry and also education towards the public about cupping and its benefits. Really happy to uh, have you on the show, Paul. Uh, first off, uh, just remember, you've got your graphics for like your website above you and then your social media shares below. So if you want to steer people to that, feel free. And what uh, do you want to talk about and what do you want people to know about cupping? Well, cupping is really interesting to me. Uh, I've been a massage therapist for, what are we at, 25 years now. So, And I'm also dual registered, so I'm also an acupuncturist and traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. I think really one of the things about cupping is if you're a massage therapist um, is I think one of the most interesting things about cupping is how it's been taught uh, in Canada and the U.S. Um, most of the time, it imported from a traditional Chinese medicine instructor at some point, right? So our uh, your instructor probably took it from a TCM person who is possibly poor at English, especially go back a generation or two of instructors. Their English is not their first language, so they don't have a good hold of of that, and they're teaching in a different physiology. And what I mean by that is Chinese medicine physiology is not the same as Western medicine physiology. And I think you can grasp that pretty easy. Uh, in Chinese medicine, we talk about things like qi. We talk about blood stagnation. We talk about things like that. Uh, the the um, One of my favorites in COVID times, we have this pathogenic epidemiological or epidemic uh, pathogen called uh, heat or cold or dampness. But if it's really bad and you end up in the hospital in Chinese medicine, you'd be diagnosed with a toxin. Okay. And that's really interesting because in Chinese medicine, we're talking about toxins as a um, pathogenic factor, where in Western physiology, that's not the way we talk about toxins. So they mean two different things. So I think when you're coming to um, a cupping course, we have to stick within our wheelhouse. So what um, we did at Cupping Canada when we designed the courses was we took what it is in Western physiology, how is the physics and how is the mechanics of cupping um, really doing soft tissue work? And how do you translate that from chi discrepancies or blood discrepancies or toxins? And how do you translate that to, in essence, what Western physiology, what we know, what it means, right? Because we don't want to confuse the public. And it's really confusing when you start talking about, in English, blood stasis, because in Western physiology, blood never is static. So... It, it there's this concept of uh, in Western physiology and Western healthcare about don't break the way your patients think about how their body works, right? Don't create fragility. Don't create problems that aren't there before you talked about it. So we want to um, take our physiology and make sure that we're dealing with Western physiology. So uh, it's really interesting. Um, I like coming at it from that point of view. And there's a lot to unlearn because it's cupping is old right it's the first use of it is 3500 years ago so it's got not only egyptian medical theory behind it 
but then that got passed on to probably the Greeks who wrote about it next. And then that got passed on to the Middle East and their medical ideas, and then Chinese medicine and their medical ideas. And then it went to Europe and Russia and their medical ideas. And now it's come to us in the Western hemisphere um, about, and, and we have our own medical ideas. And each one of those physiologies creates a story. And that story um, is how we understand our world, because that's how we understand our world. As educators, we really, in a lot of cases, are just developing and building a story. So we have to understand that as we're teaching the next generation, we don't need to pass on the old physiologies, but we have to actually be able to tease those out and, and make sure that we're not doing that, make sure that we're teaching it as a Western medical philosophical uh, way rather than an old Chinese medicine or Russian medicine or Egyptian. You know, if I started talking about the four humors in my classes, that would be ridiculous because no one believes that. So why all of a sudden do I talk about it in Chinese medicine, five elements or blood, she and body fluids or things like that. So that's kind of where we're at. We try and, and stay within our Western medicine wheelhouse, I guess. So, yeah. And one of the things uh, immediately comes up for me is I teach a discipline that uh, for most of my career, I've called time massage. And then almost as soon as I started to teach it successfully and it started to grow, people were like, wait a second, is this like traditional? And I'm like, I'm a white guy from South Louisiana. I've never mm. been to Thailand. And there was right. a big hubbub about that. Like even in a workbook, I remember writing... Western anatomy, semispinalis, you know, going over musculature. And the student said, I thought it was weird that you said it was Western anatomy. Isn't it just anatomy? And I'm yeah. like, I was a philosophy student. I could discuss ethics and existentialism for a long time. Yep. Sin is Eastern anatomy to people who are Thai. It's like trying to translate that ever since has been like this rigorous process of like trying to help the students weave through that and understand. I'm like, listen, we have updated science. We have we have evolved since this tradition was started. Right. How do we keep the body work, keep the biomechanics, keep the very efficient way of like addressing touch and chronic pain mobility? but then like update the science. That's been a challenge because they're like, well, no, I want it to be Thai. And I go, Ugh. you want it to be culturally Thai, you should probably go to Thailand. Yes. And if you don't want to be, talk about cultural appropriation, you should probably be Thai. Right? It's going to be a struggle. <laughs> right. It is. It is. My favorite thing, one of the one of my first classes that I um, uh, ever taught, I had two students in the class who were culturally Chinese. Okay. They were Chinese as a first language and Mandarin Chinese, Chinese from the People's Republic of China, which is where we get mostly what we call Chinese medicine today. And I took them aside during a break at one point and I said, hey, I'm going to talk about 
Chinese language and translation from English. And I'm going to do a little experiment if you're cool with it. Nothing crazy. I actually just want to, I want to say something in English in regards to a Chinese word. And I want to see your honest reaction. And they said, okay. And so time comes around and I said, did you know? I said to the class, I said, turn around and watch their reaction when I say this. And they were both fairly good at English. So this is why it works. Um, I, I looked at them and I said, did you know that in English, the word chi is translated into energy? And they both kind of went, what? Because that's not how a Chinese person would translate that. <laughs> Right. It's a decision that someone made in the 1940s or 50s to translate chi as energy and it's stuck. Yeah. But that weight, that word comes with a weight in English, which isn't the same as the weight it has in the Chinese language. So even when you are using as a uh, even if you are talking about things in in the traditional met in the traditional medicine, as soon as you translate it to English, you lose something or you add something or you change something. So unless you're willing to learn Chinese medicine and cupping in Chinese from someone who is Chinese, you're not learning cupping from Chinese. Yeah. Right. So I think it's important to understand that if you deal every day in English, you should be speaking in English. And if you deal every day with people who in grade seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 learned Western physiology, then you should be talking in Western physiology. Otherwise you're starting to create problems. Yeah. I think right? one of the, one of the key things I've, I've dealt with over the years is I understand the space for traditional Thai massage, for instance, since that's a discipline I kind of come out of. But I'm most interested in how does it adapt in the Western marketplace? How does it continue to flower and develop and continue and like broaden? Because even Western bodies, I think, are different than Thai bodies. Uh, we sit in chairs, not on the floor. Uh, yeah. Different degrees of like hip mobility. Um, yeah, we don't squat. <laughs> yeah, I, I come in like a little bit of an alien because I go, hey, guys, and this is the fundamental innovation. I say, put away the table and let's work on a mat with a person who's clothed. Yeah. Just that is so different than what most uh, educators or students or uh, massage therapists are putting out as massage, that it creates a bunch of, um, yeah. I think, benefits, but initially it looks like impediments to practice where it's like, this is weird. Like, right. I got to use my feet. I don't. I don't know, like my clients want massage. And it's like, no, your clients want what they have been sold. Right. And what right. your culture has already got an acceptable box for. But yeah. even adding something like cupping, it starts to expand upon and allow that box to broaden just a bit. Uh, new sure. tools. Like I, I saw a debate yesterday in a forum where they were arguing about massage guns. And how it's, you know, a real professional wouldn't use that. And I'm like, <laughs> why not? <laughs> like, you don't want more tools? Like, I don't teach cupping because yeah. I don't know it well enough to feel confident doing so. But students will sometimes come to me with things like that, you know, kind of use a massage gun or cups. And I go, sure, 
just make sure you're studying with a qualified practitioner and figuring out how to package it within the service. But That's I'm right. generally in favor of giving the therapist more tools. Well, absolutely. Because there are, I always think of it as there's really in, interesting dynamics within the profession. And this is in any profession. You've got purists who only use their hands, only do it on a table, only do it with the person nearly naked or nearly dressed. Like there, it's, it's a very parameter. This is what massage therapy is. And then there's people like you and me that says, well, the reality is if I injure my hand and I can use a tool to continue doing my job and do it just as effectively and sell my patients that this is a still a massage, well, then whether that tool is a, a massage gun or whether it's a cupping set or an ISTM tool like Grassin or ProStim or whatever, you know, it, I think that it, that ability to expand our um, our interaction with our client or our patient and just do our best for the patient is the most primary thing. You know, it's really an interesting, it's an interesting place. Interesting. I think cupping, just like any other tool, I, I do it weird too. My practice, I don't use glass cups and I never fire cup. <clears throat> you know, I use a like silicone. I have a couple here, just silicone cups. Yeah. And I have the vacuum cups, right? And I use these all over the time, all over the body. And I'll put them on, I'll move them around sometimes. But most of the time, what I like to do is I put them on and make my patient move. Yeah. And make your patient move? That's crazy talk. <laughs> it's, right? it's not to me, but, you know, well, I, exactly. I think I sense that we're a little more on the same kind of wavelength. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've taken a couple of your uh, online courses, and I appreciate your work because you do have your patients moving. Uh, just the way you practice as a on the on the mat instead of on the table, um, you are inherently going to move the patient because it's easier because they're never going to fall off the table. Yeah. Why would I not stretch my patient? Yeah, I was, I was having a conversation with another educator, and they taught a class to some massage envy group somewhere. Like, I won't name yep. the state to out them, I guess. But the students were having a hard time with his clothes on work, where they just had shorts on, and I think they're mainly working on the legs. And they were asking afterwards, well, how do I use this with Swedish? And he's like, okay, do the Swedish move and then do the move I taught you on the shin, you know, on that part of the body. Just kind of go toggle back and forth. Right. And he, he was very clear to me that he's like, I felt your frustration, Robert, because he's like, I don't think they got it. Like it didn't, it started to not conform to, again, what I always say is what they were taught in school. Right. And I always go, listen. If you want a better massage, I might not be the teacher for you. If you're trying to solve a pain relief and mobility problem, we're going to work well together. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying my work isn't massage, but that's what the rest of the industry tells me consistently. And every time it happens, I go, well, great. We don't need licenses in all 50 states. And I don't know what else to say about it because it's like that's a weird 
set of parameters that not only philosophically butts up against the box, but in regards to legislation and regulation, it butts up against the box as well. It's like, I don't have any problem going, well, what is massage? And sitting back and thinking about it for three hours. (laughs) But it doesn't make the students more comfortable because they want a nice, safe, safe uh, box to be able to deliver to the clients to make it like a, a transition. I would think that with cupping in particular, it's probably a bit easier because they can see it as a attack on service instead of like reinventing the wheel. Yeah. Well, you have to teach it as I think you have to, as an instructor, teach it as an add on service until they can, they've done it enough times that they can reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Right. But, and that's the thing that I always have to be mindful of because I'm always like, well, let's go to the end because that's where I live. Right. Because <laughs> that's, I've already done all the basics. Right. And I've practiced this for 20 years. So, you know, I, I have to always come back. All oh, right. These people have no experience doing this. These students, they have to explore these things for the first time. So what I do is I try and present a number of aha moments throughout a class. And I, I kind of know where they live. Right. So as we're going through a class, I'll put a little emphasis on a word here of, or, or a, a, I'll let them practice and stumble a bit. And then I go, how about this? And then the light goes on and you have to, I think one of the things or joys about learning is that creating those little aha moments within a class um, because everyone's kind of stuck on the same thing. And it doesn't matter if you're a practitioner who's 20 years in versus a practitioner who is brand new out of school, hasn't even touched a person yet out of school. When it comes to a second modality or a new toolkit, you are new. You might have some prearranged thoughts on this new tool and taking the course kind of out of spite because you need the CEs sometimes. But um, I got a funny story about that. But <laughs> education out of spite. I sense the, yeah. the anger, <laughs> right? The indignation of continuing education. Right. <laughs> so I, if, here's the funny story because it is kind of funny. So um, with my massage therapy association, I'm very active with them. I've been instructing for them for a really long time. And I very much come at it from this is the Western point of view. This is what we can say is probably happening underneath our hands. This is, or underneath the cups, if we're doing cupping, but I come at it from very much an evidence-informed, evidence-based approach. And if you are saying something that really doesn't meet up with what the evidence says, I always challenge my uh, viewers or listeners or the people taking my classes to rethink what they're saying. Right. And that's, ridiculously tough because it's habit. I mean, how many people say, oh, you should have a drink of water after after you do a massage? There is no science that says you should have a drink of water after a massage, right? So it's interesting to me that we have all these built-in things. So I always, there was a couple of older massage therapists who were taught in the previous generation to me, like I've been practicing for 25 years. One of them has been practicing for 45 at this point. So very kind of, you get less malleable in your brain or, or, you know, you, (laughs) you, you become more rigid in your thinking 
uh, as you are in anything for a longer period of time, right? Because you stop thinking about the basics. But he would come and take all of these courses and he would sit in the background, this one guy, he would sit in the background and cross his arms and just like be angry at me the whole time. We're now good friends. Anyway, he came to a cupping course and he needed some CEs to finish out, round out his year. Um, and he came to the cupping course and he and someone who'd been practicing for 35 years sat in the front row, right in front of me, arms crossed going like, you, you, you can't, you can't tell me anything kid. And uh, so uh, one of them had had a hip surgery and had a re really bad Trendelenburg gait. So it was oh, really bad. What? Trendelenburg gait. Okay. Um, Trendelenburg gait is a gait where the glute medius isn't firing. So the hip sinks and they, they, they have this hitch to their walk. It's very specific. And I knew he had it, you know, like you, you can tell from across the room when he's walking. So anyway, I was talking about strengthening glute medius with cupping. And so I said, okay, you guys, uh, this is what we're going to do because we were doing the glutes. These are the few things we're going to do. And I want you to try, along with piriformis treatments and glute max treatments, I want you to do glute medius, and I want you specifically to do strengthening. And then they all went up and did their work. So I'm across the other side of the room, and there's 40 tables in this room. So I'm all the way on the other side of the room doing helping someone through this demonstration. And I look up to see this guy walking towards me with a smile on his face. And I'm like, well, this is weird. And he says, hey, come look at this. So I finish up what I'm doing, go over. And his partner with the Trendelenburg gate stands up and walks dead straight across the room. He did 30 seconds of cupping. He's been a massage therapist. He'd had this hip surgery done 10 years beforehand. And nothing that he was ever done has gotten that glute medius to fire. And... Is it something that I did specifically for him? No. In this class, that's, that's what I would do for. I would. This is what I was teaching. I teach it in every class. But it so happened that it was this guy and his partner that saw it and went, light bulb moment. Oh, I can use this in my clinic. This now makes sense to me. And it's providing those little moments those aha moments and if you add movement into cupping you can really get a bigger wow moment and your clients will have it too which is a beautiful thing i have to yeah. say such brilliant things in class as muscles cause movement and we're going to use movement to access those muscles from origin to insertion right well, I always think it's really... What I, kind of magic speak is this? <laughs> I know, right? My, my favorite thing is, in my class, one of the things that I often say is, okay, you've found a range of motion dysfunction. There's the word motion in there. So if we're going to treat that, what's one of the things we probably need to add into this treatment? And I wait. And they're scared of me a little bit, I think. <laughs> But eventually someone will say movement, motion. I'm like, yeah. So we can do that with cups on. We can do that with cups off. doesn't matter to me. You already do it. 
you know, everyone does a version of pin and stretch. Like it's not rocket science, but maybe how we're conceptualizing how we do treatments is because a lot of times when we're taught a pattern, right? If you're taught us in a school, you're taught a pattern. This is how you do a massage. But if you're never taught to think about the massage and what are you actually trying to accomplish, that's where um, the leaps and bounds, that's where the aha moments are going to come. So, yeah, I always come back in cupping classes to why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? What What is it that prompted you to do cupping in this way to get this effect? Because if you can understand, like cupping, the effects of each technique of cupping are easy. I can teach you that in 20 minutes. But teaching you to think about how to perform that and why and when, that's why we do it in 16 hours. <laughs> 16 hours. Yeah. My intro tie class is 18 and I'm told, Robert, you're, you're overwhelming the students. And I'm like, it's intro. I'm not even, I'm not even close to getting to overwhelm. I want to go there, yeah. <laughs> but it can be a lot of uh, new information also from an admitted contrarian. Yes. I totally get that. You know, we do 16 hours and um, there's, in our hands-on portions, there's a very small portion of that because I don't think cupping is rocket science. Once you've figured out how to put them on and take them off and how to move them around on the body and how to apply them and then how the whys of why you would do each of those things, you just need now theory, practice on theory crafting and role playing to figure out what they're doing. And then you have to drink drag the patient, the, the student back into, well, why is this basic theory the way it is? Why, why do we think that, um, why do we think that interacting using a cup on the body, why do we think that that interacts with the person's nervous system, their tissue, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, a lot of times take them all the way back to basic sciences. Ooh. Well, I, that, I, I see that our educational strain is <laughs> taking a toll mentally. Trying to, ooh, man, trying to take students back to like fundamentals and almost, in my case, in the United States, like questioning the things they were taught in school is like really challenging. And I don't mean just massage school. It's also like just general school curriculum that might not be very science heavy to begin with in biology. Yeah. Yeah. So coming, getting a, getting a student to come back into that and think about it or try to think about it logically, you know, I, I always chuckle, you know, when people continue like cupping removes toxins. Okay. Well, what toxins? I'll wait. <laughs> and then the, then once they've kind of got through their heads, I said, okay, then how does it remove it? Like, where does it go? It's got to go somewhere. And how do you test for that? And you as a massage therapist, are you able to do the testing to say that you're actually removing it? Or are you just making it up? 
most of the time they're just making it up because they don't understand the logical progression of of how the body actually works. The science, the research, the double blind studies, what I've seen and I find a little bit unfortunate is I think I, I'm and I'm just interacting based on what I've seen in therapists and what I've seen as an educator. They come to my classes wanting what I call Asian magic. And I slowly start to go, well, hold on, guys, but what about what about research? What about the science? What about double blind studies? And they're like, oh, like they feel like I'm trying to destroy this this thing, this this magic that they want. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The science and the research supports us in the things that we're going to be able to do with clients. It adds to our mythology, if you will. It adds the to the story. And yeah. it makes for very effective, reproducible results when we understand how to harness it and use it within our practices. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we need to use the science. We, our society has become, and it's shown around COVID, we <laughs> have... Become a little adverse to science, yes. Because, and I think one of those, one of the reasons, and I was thinking about this the other day because you know, thinking, um, I was thinking about it the other day, and I think part of the problem is science changes, and people don't like change. Yes, and I've also doesn't. found this. <laughs> yeah. So I think if you are going to adhere or or use science in your class you have to make sure that the caveat there is that hey this could change tomorrow so you need to be open-minded you have to ask questions because what is scientific method it's how to ask questions in a way that you can get answers which will probably lead you to more questions right so and that's a good thing because it furthers your understanding and understanding, I think, in a lot of ways, is the opposite of just blind faith, right? Because you've got to question and and be able to weigh the differences in the different kinds of results that you get from those questions. Like people's opinions, I don't care about people's opinions. They can have all the opinions they want because each person has probably more than one. But if I do a um, study where I gather everyone's opinions on a particular subject and start teasing out, you know, groups believe this, different groups believe that, and now we're starting to get somewhere. And we start moving towards, well, consensus not doesn't necessarily mean truth, but if we're talking a sociological study, we certainly want to look that way, right? So I think we've got to make sure that as educators, as we bring science into the classroom, that we are saying, hey, this is what I say right now, but in 10 years from now, you better be questioning this because there will be 10 years of people doing science, which might mean that this way of thinking about what we're doing or this way of communicating what we're doing is changing what we do may not change do i apply cupping very similarly to the way galen did cupping 
well, I don't usually do bleeding cupping, so probably not exactly similar, but the act of cupping is probably the same. I could use fire cupping. I don't, but, you know, in Egypt, in Egypt, they used to use um, um, more like this without the valve. So they'd just put it on the skin and they'd suck on the end to draw the suction out and then cap it with something. I could do that in my class, in my treatment room. I choose not to because I don't want my mouth anywhere that close to my patient, but it's possible. And so what I'm doing would be the same thing that we've been doing for 3,500 years. And that might not change in the next thousand, but certainly the language around it has to change. The way we communicate it to our patients, the way we communicate it to our our uh, students as educators. And I think it's really interesting. I, I'm, it jazzes me. Yeah. I mean, part of the conversation I've had with um, colleagues in relation to marketing is we're starting to have a much more in-depth conversation about storytelling and about yeah. video production, which I'm heavy on, to tell stories right. about our practices. It's not just... You know, here's the benefit of cupping. Here's the benefit of tie body work. Here's the benefit of being on a mat. Here's the benefit, you know, a benefits related service is something that people want. But I sense that there's a piece of the, the marketing drawing people into your story where they want to be pulled in a certain direction, like having a practice where you're selling um, the, the benefits of your work for athletes is different than selling the benefits of your work for what I call desk jockeys, programmers, people who spend an inordinate amount of time at a computer. Right. And I'm at the, the very beginning, I think. I, I feel sometimes like I, my practice is developed, but from a marketing sense, in storytelling form in video, I don't think it has. And the, the story is they see time massage, <clears throat> they come in for a class, and they feel like there's a bait and switch. Like I was selling this thing and I'm like, no, 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 no. I never said it was traditional. Right. Like I'm trying to give you enough of a foundation so that you can then bifurcate. You can choose to come along with me and ask good questions about science and say, I don't know. Or you can choose to go in opposite direction and study with teachers who are going to bring you more within, within what I consider more traditional path. And right. I try to make that painfully aware in classes. The difference is that traditional path is only something that a small number of clients and therapists are actually interested in. Yeah. Most therapists that I know are really just looking for beneficial work. And the beneficial work isn't just, I don't know, you don't just go buy a Cadillac because it's better, cheaper, faster, fuel mileage. Those are certainly factors, but there's a storytelling process that I'm still trying to figure out. And it's like the story, not only that you're telling the client, but the story that we as educators are telling the students to try to draw them in, like the right. sorts of therapists they want to be, the sorts of practices they want to have. Yeah, I think it. I think, I think storytelling is really the way we pass knowledge, right? Um, so, I, I, I'm really interested. That's an interesting way. I've never thought of it. Marketing as storytelling, but I totally get yeah. that. You watch. <laughs> Go into YouTube and watch the Microsoft Zune versus the Apple iPod commercials. <laughs> Which one's still alive? <laughs> right? And that's storytelling. That's the power of storytelling. So 
you know, coming from a marketing standpoint, absolutely, uh, yeah. you know, your story right. matters. Like, right. how many times do you see in terms of cupping, how many times do you see that stupid infographic go around about, you know, this with the six different circles on it, and one says it's moderate stagnation, severe stagnation, phlegm dampness, like who uses that in Western physiology? It's just a scare tactic, right? It's like, it's not informing. It's, a, it's, it's, it's muddying the water. You know, I always think it's funny that people get so focused on the cupping mark. I'm like, but our, if, if I was a surgeon and I cut out a tumor out of a person, would I really be that concerned with the bruise that's left over after? No. Man, I have seen, and granted, I'm on, I'm on the periphery in a lot of different yeah, ways. Yeah. I have a yeah. weird discipline. But I've seen some people in the pain science community lose their mind over contusions being caused by cups. And they always bring out the absolute worst horror story. It's oh, like sure. I cupped this person for 24 hours and they've got like what look like blood blisters or something. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just a modicum of common sense. Well, it comes back to safe practice, right? Yeah. Like, what is your goal? Cupping, <laughs> cupping, you don't ever have to bruise a patient to get an effect. Now, depending on what the effect you want to get, you may need to bruise a patient. But really, should we be that concerned about it? Well, from an informed consent st standpoint, absolutely, we should be talking about it with our patients. From a um, ethical standpoint, why would you do harm when you don't have to? However, at some point, if we talk about tissue remodeling for, with scar tissue, if you're not breaking the little blood vessels within the scar, are you really remodeling it? Right? And I would say, um, I say, I'm remodeling it. I'm not doing anything. The body does all the work, but you push it in the right direction, whether it's no matter what tissue provocation therapy that you use, whether it be cupping, whether it be an ISTM tool, whether it be stretching, strengthening, whatever, it, the, the physiology of it is the same, right? So... I think it's really interesting to use cupping over scars because one of the things that we want to do when remodeling a scar or one of the ways that we think scar tissue is remodeled is you break those little blood vessels within the scar. I know, I know. cupping can break blood vessels. <laughs> so why wouldn't I use cupping as my first line of treatment? It just makes sense. Yeah, it's it's... It's kind of the, the box thing again about massage. And then most of my practice was spent pushing the edges to try to explore what the boundaries were. And then trying to understand as someone who suffered in chronic pain, okay, like I have to do stuff that allows me to not shoot opiates. Like, right. you know, we have some issues with that in our country. And as a chronic pain survivor, I knew if I couldn't get help, I was going to wind up, you know, abusing drugs, essentially. Yep. So everything I found was on the periphery of this box or sometimes outside of it. It was like cranial sacral therapy wasn't massage. 
Thai body work wasn't really massage. Yoga certainly wasn't massage. But the more I mixed and matched and blended, the practice, one, I got better. I improved in chronic yes. pain. And then I kept using that with clients, and the clients were just completely like, dude, this is amazing. Yes. And I hear this regularly. This is amazing. Why aren't massage therapists doing this? And I go, uh, they keep telling me it's not massage. <laughs> and I continue to teach and educate and assume that things will uh, shift as it does. But I feel like there's a, a cultural war we're fighting. One Absolutely. of the distinctions I've made is I feel like I made a very distinct stance in my practice at one point, And I, I, I made the... The, the heretical view, the heretical announcement that science is good. Very nice. And it's like, let's ask questions. And then people were like, you know, getting, getting frustrated. And I'm like, hold on. Science is different than the way Western medicine is practiced as a for-profit discipline in the United States. Yes. You, you got to separate that, Okay. That's that's one piece that like if you if you want to complain about big pharma or whatever terms they may use, I'm like, okay, I have my complaints about how medicine is practiced as well, but I don't have a problem with the science and continued research behind it giving us more answers. Sure. And giving us more questions. Yeah. And pushing our boundaries. Like it just makes sense. You know, what is it, I always think it's really interesting. When you think about the people who are pushing boundaries, uh, often they were the staunchest supporters of massage as a a thing like this. And then they started looking at it from a different point of view um, because they're asking questions. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe that just takes years. Some people ask questions right away, but I think for a lot of people, it just takes a lot of years to you know, you got to do have that mastery, that 10,000 hours, if you like, of, of hands-on work before you can go, okay, now that I've got this, what the heck am I actually doing? Yeah. The mid, mid-career crisis? It's like There's a, a piece where I, I, I think people are having fear about something different. They fear mm-hmm. change. You said that earlier. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to craft a sense of, safety around exploring kind of outside of the box like in my classes creating a space where they can explore using their legs and feet or working on a mat which is primarily what i teach right that feels you know safe so i've got upcoming classes where the first class is is table based because we just start them right where they are and then the second class is mat based and i essentially replicate the same things on a mat and inevitably right. once they try it if I, if I can manage to create that safe space th- when they do the mat class they go wow this is like so much easier on the mat and i go yes but if i don't do it in that order it doesn't matter how many times i say well it's more biomechanically effective i'm selling a yes. feature right yes not the story the difference is the clients don't really care if we work hard One of the benefits to what I teach, and I think also to probably what you teach, is it's not as physically intense on the therapist's bodies. Yes. And it expands their tool set. Yeah. So what I often do in my classes is, because I'm I'm much 
uh, I, I really believe in outcome-based um, treatments. So what is, your, what is your patient's outcome? And, and make it simple. Let's not talk about improved circulation. Let's not talk about all these physiological things. Let's just talk about an outcome because really they don't care. I want pain relief and I want to move better. Right? So if you frame everything in that point of view, then you can start, start in your classes, say, okay, you did this cupping. How's your patient feel? Patient feels great. Okay. How much time did you spend doing cupping in for this problem? Oh, I spent 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, five minutes. Okay. How long would it have taken you with your hands without cups to get that effect and have your patient report that much effect? 20 minutes, half an hour. Interesting. And I, and I do that. I go, interesting. And I move on. But one of the things I always come back to, how long did it take you? How much energy, energy do, did you expend? Because ultimately, the client is coming to you for relief of something. I'm stressed. I need stress relief. I need pain relief. I need better range of motion. I want to pick up my kids. I want to whatever it is, right? Whatever activity of daily living that they are doing that they're incapable of doing. Otherwise, most likely they would have never started seeing you, right? Unless they got it as a gift certificate and they went, oh, that's great. I feel better. I didn't know I didn't feel good, but now I feel better, right? That's the other uh, entrance into our, our, our profession. But from a therapist point of view, I don't think therapists think in outcomes enough, right? We get so focused on doing the treatment that we stop looking at, well, what, what was the why, what was the why the patient came to see you for? And how is, how can you provide that why as quickly, efficiently, if you like, lazily, if you're like, that's how I discuss my practice. I'm a lazy therapist. I want to do things very quick and very easy so I can get back to doing other things like the, the, the nice part of the massage, if you like. Um, so um, as you're moving through and as I try and get my patients or my students to check in with their patients after every intervention, you put the cups on, you take the cups off, you reassess your patient. Why do you do that? So you know you've made a change. Not only now do you know you've made a change, but also your patient knows that you've made a change. And if your patient knows that you've made a change, well, the science in biopsychosocial model says they'll now have better results than if you never got them to reassess in the first place. Right? And because they're doing it in front of you, they'll, they'll get even a better result. So it's using those science, science tips and tricks, but also really honing your craft and making it it easy and making sure your story is correct so that if you are your storytelling on for treatments should probably be around outcomes more so than it should be about treatments yeah the the interesting thing from a marketing perspective is you and i as educators are selling information to therapists yeah and therapists are selling 
a story, if you will, to clients. Those are two very different things. Oh, and very, yeah, very different. Markets. I'm a little more adept at selling. And in fact, I think it's a little more simple to sell to clients. Um, I would not rant. Well, yeah, I do rant a lot, but not on this specific topic. Um, therapists being service providers, service providers, instead of problem solvers. And I always pivoted myself, positioned myself as, uh, like a client would come in, I worked in a chiropractor's office and we had, we had an hour. I mean, it was solid, just, just an yeah. hour. And they'd say, what kind of massage do you do? And I'd say, well, we'll get to that, but what problem are you having today? Are you having any pain or what's going on with you? And it wasn't ignoring their question. It was like, we'll, we'll get to that, but like, tell me what's going on. And then I would go right to the issue, trying Thanks. to help them with that specific thing. And then verbally continue the, was like, yeah, I've had a really wide background, but you know, I tend to focus on pain relief and mobility. I think the work is relaxing, but that's what I do. And then once you'd built the trust, you know, what they're really saying is they don't really know anything about massage for the most part. They're not like, um, in, in, in food circles, we have a, a word for people who are crazy about food. They're foodies. Yes. We don't have a comparable word for people who are into massage and body work. Right. They don't really know. Like I can say, I do cranial sacral therapy or I do trigger point or whatever it is. And they're not, they're not really even sure what that is. Right. So there's this education process that goes on where... I go, okay, where are you having a problem? Because for me, I was never going to win as a service provider. The guy who just doles out the massage. I had in, in my situation to solve a problem, but when I could help them with pain, they immediately were like, nope, you are the guy that I see. Yep. Like I have to come back and see you. These other therapists aren't working on me the same way. And that was how my practice began to thrive. Right. You and I have a different set of challenges where we're telling different stories now to therapists, but encouraging them to think about cupping and, you know, what problems does it actually solve for the clients and featuring right. that in that storytelling proposition in their social media or how they're marketing themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it it's really quite interesting. And I built my practice a very similar way. Um, funny story. When I first started coming to the U.S. a lot, um, people would always ask me, "Well, what kind of massage do you do?" As a Canadian, that's a really weird question because we learn all of it within our massage program. So it's massage, and it's what does it matter? My interest is in the same as yours is. What are you suffering? What is your problem that you've come to see me to fix? And then I'm going to, as the professional, choose the correct tool in order to get you there with efficiency, with some speed, alacrity, if you like, because uh, sometimes I use big words and because um, they're fun. Um, but how do I effectively or most effectively get you from where you are when you walked in the door to where you want to be? And that's my job as a professional. So I do massage, period. The tools that I use, which I understand from early, because I've been practicing for 25 years, 
um, when I started going to the States, everyone tried to differentiate themselves. Well, I'm a medical massage therapist. I'm a whatever myofascial. I'm a Barnes student. I'm a whoever up ledger person. Um, it, it meant to be a marketing technique, but it's become pretty meaningless with the amount of massage therapists around. And unfortunately, the schooling, the base schooling doesn't seem to provide massage therapists with enough um, background or logical, thoughtful approach to TCM or to uh, massage therapy to actually kind of connect. Well, you could use all of these tools, but it's the outcome and the communication with the patient that's the really the important part that if you want the assessment, the testing, it's the assessment and testing doesn't really matter ultimately because it's only based on what kind of treatment you're going to apply. I mean, I test my patients. I assess my patients in a very specific way because of the way I treat. When I send someone to a different therapist who does different things than me, I am, I don't tell them my assessment because it doesn't make any sense. Like that's not their wheelhouse. Like if I'm going to send my patient to a chiropractor for treatment, it doesn't matter what muscles are tight or what joints I think are the problem. It's how they're going to do their assessment that matters. So I find it really interesting. We just don't, we're not thoughtful enough about our whys. So just for people who are tuning in, you know, therapists may have a little bit more of an idea about this, but the province that you're in in Canada, how many yeah. hours is training? Uh, base hours is 2,200 hours. 2,200. I'm in yeah. Texas. It's 500. Right. And I wanted to make that clear for somebody from the public watching this. Like there's, you know, disparate views. And I mean, I went through a 500 hour or it was actually 637, but a 500 hour program. I'm the yeah. product of that. And I'm talking to educators whose basics was 2,200. Yeah, the basics just to get and you started. can go up from there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. I, the and you go to Europe and there's a different set of standards, and you go to Australia, New Zealand, and there's a different set of standards. And yet, we all do kind of the same thing. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to how many ways of it are there to apply force onto the human body. You know, there's like seven. <laughs> and it, then when you combine them, it gets a little exciting. But really, massage is massage. But it's the ability of the therapist and, and for, for a patient out there, it's the ability of your therapist to truly kind of understand what they're doing with their body, with your body or with their application and think through the problem to get you to where you want to be, whether that's stress relief, range of motion restrictions, relief, pain relief, whatever relief you're looking for. So, yeah, here in the States, I would occasionally pose questions in class because selling what I'm teaching, if it's in fact mat based, is a little different. Even if you said, okay, let's table work, but you keep their clothes on. It, yeah. it, they're like, man, this is, you could see it in their fate. This is, this is different. Like, how do I, you know, package this or, you know, sell this? And I would say, listen, instead of selling massage, can you legally, I would just ask this question, 
can you legally call yourself a pain relief and mobility specialist? Hmm? Like, is that, they're like, is that legal? I'm like, well, there's no laws against it. You're still working within and under your massage license and within your scope of practice as a massage therapist in your jurisdiction. But you're changing the story. If you're at a party and you say, I'm a massage therapist, that means something. But if you say, I'm a pain relief and mobility specialist, they're more likely to go, whoa, like what is, you're like, oh, I, I specialize in like soft tissue treatments for chronic pain. Ooh, that, that storytelling process also has a distinction because I wonder, for instance, if you have a 2200 hour program, how much did they go into business and marketing? A 500 hour program is just not enough for them to cover the minutia. So, you know, I, I, I would, um, I've got my certificate here somewhere. I got a B in anatomy, by the way, <laughs> but, um, my, my schooling was in 2002. Yeah. This hadn't really developed at that point. YouTube no. wasn't in existence. So, the tech marketplace and how we tell stories has changed very, very rapidly. Oh, for sure. I mean, just look at what YouTube, um, what Instagram and Facebook have done to practices. You know, when I went to school, it was really important to have a yellow page ad. I haven't had a yellow pages ad for 15 years. Like, it's not important anymore because it's only a very small demographic that use paper directories, right? Um, now, if that's where you live, if that's the group you want to touch, you better have a good Yellow Pages ad, right? But um, like how you reach out to people is is super important. In our 2200-hour program, like I would completely disregard all of the stuff that I learned at this point because the laws have changed. So there's no juris, the jurisprudence is wrong at this point. Uh, you know, the bookkeeping is about the same, but honestly, our bookkeeping class was like hire a bookkeeper or an accountant and that's it. Our uh, marketing was get a yellow pages and have business cards and news and uh, newsletters that we used to mail out. And that's cost of fortune and uh, things like that. Um, what else was there? There was no cons no thought of how to hire and fire and human resources stuff. There was no real discussion on boundaries at that point because those weren't a thing. Um, <laughs> they, they weren't in the late nineties. Like we never talked about them. Yeah. We never really talked about ethics. We never talked about racism we never talked about sexism we never talked about all of the isms which i think are should be important parts of our our programs at this point because really teaching a person to be a good massage therapist um part of that i think is helping them to be better people and communication is a huge thing i think in massage therapy yeah. um that is a big black hole in most yes. schooling. I mean, one of the most, to me, what feels sometimes like the most controversial thing is teaching the students to communicate with the client verbally in session. Yeah. And they're like, no, but I'm talking like, no, 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 no. I'm not teaching you to be a service provider. 
I'm teaching you to be a problem solver. If they're in chronic pain, you have to communicate with them more about pressure. You have to communicate with them about sensitivity levels. You have to find out, like, if I move my arm, you know, one way or the other, which is preferred. That's a little, just that. It's a very subtle thing, but it completely changes, I think, clinical outcomes in their practice. And I also found that what it did for me personally is my clients had a close, closer connection with me, not because of techniques applied, yep. but because it expressed something about my concern about their pain relief. Not only concern, but your understanding. Yeah. Right? And that ability to, to market empathy. <laughs> it's the story, right? Uh, and I, and I, I don't mean story in this particular case. We see, we've said story a lot. And I don't mean necessarily a made-up fictional account of something. But it's the way you communicate it. Right. And that's the story we're talking about, um, that ability. To, how do you translate that into a YouTube video? How do you translate that into interact patient interaction? One of my favorite tools that um, a patient brought to me from another therapist was, you know, that little chart of the humans that you have on your intake chart where you say draw on there where your pain is. One of my one of my colleagues was using a version of that and said, I want you to mark on this picture, point on the doll, where you don't like to be touched. What a great tool, right? In terms of communicating empathy, she had treated a lot of victims or survivors of rape, um, um, abuse, things like that. So it made sense to her that they would shut down if she asked them, but it's really easy to dissociate and just put it on a piece of paper. And then they just mark on their thing places where they, she wasn't supposed to touch them. And then she never did. And her practice exploded. Yeah. Right. One little thing. One thing. That's it. So that, I think that's a really good um, way of letting other people even tell their story within their within your treatment, and if you can connect with your patient, whether you're applying cupping, mat work, table work, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's how you guys, how you and your client connect to tell your stories so that they interact, and that therapeutic interaction that therapeutic relationship is based on the way you can communicate it so bringing that back around to cupping making sure that you're talking about cupping in a way that they already understand in words that are commonly used mm -hmm. in a physiology that they're commonly used makes way more sense than telling them that they have a chi dysfunction or blood stasis or stuff like that. Because that really, then you have to spend an hour yeah. telling them another story, which they probably won't still understand. From a communication standpoint, I was wondering something as a fellow educator. Uh, COVID just wiped out my in-person clients for a time and then in-person classes. Right. Uh, I've essentially fully transitioned to an online um, education model and I'm having some challenges getting students on board because my oof, 
my use of tech ballooned to yes. the point where I feel like I'm outstripping the students who are, they're ready to go back to in-person classes. And I'm like, uh, no, I can give you information for 75% less every two weeks. So how is, from a communication standpoint, um, how have you and uh, Michelle worked with like education online? I'm not as familiar with your infrastructure or your classes. So is that like a, a growing part of your business or where, where does that stand at the moment? Well, so when COVID hit, if you like, I had just gone down to the U.S. from Canada. I was had four or five, five or six courses in the next two weeks kind of thing, in-person courses. I was going to fly around from one city to another yeah. and do all those courses. And COVID happened. And I got a phone call and then I got an email and they canceled the courses. And okay, that's great. I'm in Florida. This is not bad. So at that point, we, make it, we had to make a decision. Okay, well, if we can't go to these courses, these, there's two choices. You either refund them or you offer the same thing online. So we went to a live online model. So we teach it right over Zoom, which allows us to have two-way interaction. So it's not that much different from being in the classroom other than I have to just adapt my stuff to being able to show them. So when we started, we didn't have a lot of infrastructure. So we had two, we had one computer that I would sit in lecture like I am right now. And then I had a second one that was on a phone. And so whenever we needed to demonstrate stuff, I would grab it, put it on a tripod and point it wherever we needed to, to shoot. And that worked really well. And when the students do their practical, they just do exactly the same thing. They take their computer and point it at their table and do the treatment. And so that went really well. Um, and luckily, or uh, I guess luckily, the associations and the people who accept uh, CEs on as part of your license, they went, okay, because no one can do practical in person, it's fine to do online. But we kept with this online live model because it made more sense to us. So I only offer it, you know, once to twice a month. At the beginning, we offered it like every week because I was bored, you know, and no one had anything to do. So we just offered it a lot. But what we yeah. found is our sweet spot is probably about once a month for our regular class, our 16 hour class. And then some of the more advanced or some of the add-ons go every two or three months kind of in cycling orders. So um, that's been a big part of it. And now as we are moving towards going back to live courses, Michelle and I looked at each other and said, how about eight? Eight is a good number for in a year between Canada and the U.S. So both of us are used to traveling. Michelle used to work at about 20 to 25 trade shows a year. Um, and I used to go to probably 12 or 13 a year. So we're used to that movement. Our practices are made for that. So... Um, the the movement from in-person to fully online. Uh, will we go back to doing some in-person? Yes, because I think the marketing of it is important. 
more so than anything. And I, what I mean by that is there are only so many people I can get in front of and convince that my course is really interesting by doing podcasts and stuff like that, because there's a whole group of massage therapists who are so anti-technology that they don't, they don't, they won't look at YouTube. They won't look at, they don't have Facebook accounts. They don't do Instagram. So what do they do to get continuing education? They probably go to their association conventions or things like that. I can just get in front of a few more of them. Am I going to try and drive them towards uh, a internet course? Absolutely. We offer it cheaper. We offer it more often. But there's always going to be people that say, well, no, I need to have, I need to be live. Okay. We can do that. I don't, I don't fight what they want. I just wonder what other educators have <clears throat> done during COVID because of the, the nature of the beast um, to see the, the bomb drop, so to speak, biologically, yeah. where it just like the in-person stuff dried up. I frankly, if I didn't have an online presence and I wasn't already teaching online, I think I would be living with my mom and I'm 44 years old. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, we just, we, we had several late night conversations about what are we going to do? Cause we were not as a business, you have to think, well, what's the bottom line? And we were not profitable enough to turn around and refund everybody's, uh, everybody's stuff. We had just put in a huge order for cups that were coming across from China, hopefully, um, you know, the, so the money was tied up in stock. That wasn't even here. <laughs> yeah. So we just said, okay, well, the pivot is going to be online. And so I spent two days learning how to do Zoom, signing up, doing like this kind of stuff. And literally that's all it took. Um, I had a trial course that I operated. We had a whole bunch of people that were in our training program to learn to teach uh, cupping therapy for Cupping Canada. Um, and so we had a couple of training courses around them and it worked really well. And then we started inviting people who'd taken our cupping course before and we did it again two more times and then we offered it live. And haven't looked back. It, it's been... Um, COVID has been a way, I think, for us to really expand our business model um, and really be more profitable. Diversification. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we're just about to finish up. Do you have any uh, closing words? Again, your website is above you. Your social yeah. media is below. Yeah, for us, uh, we would love to see if you're interested in cupping and especially from an evidence-informed pr practice, we would love to see you in one of our courses. We offer them monthly. Um, you can catch them up ahead, our websites above, cuppingcanada.com and cuppinginternational.com. Um, we are very active in social media. Um, down below will be uh, Cupping USA, uh, at, at Cupping USA in both Instagram and Facebook. Um, and that will get us, get you to us. And uh, yeah, we'd love to see you. We also have a, a small group called crazy about cupping. It's not that small. 
on Facebook. And uh, it's probably one of the more sane places to discuss cupping. Uh, we, we, Michelle and I, my wife and I are both very active on it, her more than me. Uh, but we do, like, people still talk about toxins and we try and correct that language and bring it back to a more Western-based approach. Um, and we do that, we hope, in a kind of a loving sort of way. Um, it's hard to read uh, Facebook comments. You always assume that they're angry, but um, it's the way it is. Uh, but we try and make sure that people are feel supported and feel like that while they maybe have trained, been trained to talk this way, uh, if we can support them in moving to a more evidence-informed approach, that's what we like to do. So that's a good group and it's active, crazy active. Great. Listen, guys, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. And thank you, Paul, for coming on to uh, talk with me. Uh, Paul, if you'll wait just one minute while I uh, close this down, we can still chat for a second when we're uh, off of the podcast live. Uh, Thank you guys for tuning into the podcast. I really appreciate it. We'll have some more episodes coming and more, I think, diversification over time. Um, For a lot of my people, kind of like you, Paul, like, I try to get rid of this thing where Robert knows what he's doing. It's like, no, I'm just standing on a mountain of failure. <laughs> you yes. just keep tweaking it, making it better, improving it. So uh, thank you guys for tuning into the podcast, and I'll see you very, very soon.